You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show. Okay, bright and early on this Sunday morning, right in the middle of Labor Day weekend. And more importantly, the final NFL-less Sunday that we'll have to endure in 2023. Hope everyone's doing well. Pat O'Keefe with you all morning long until noon. And of course, it's hard not to look ahead to this time next week. This exact time next week when, well, we'll be reacting to the NFL season opening game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Detroit Lions. We'll, of course, be making some last-minute alterations to our fantasy football lineups, more importantly here in New York. And you heard Mike Greenberg's promo just a couple of minutes ago, getting ready for a football season unlike any other here in New York, especially for the New York Jets fan base. But it'll be a huge weekend next weekend at MetLife Stadium. We'll be getting ready for the Giants and the Cowboys on Sunday night and then turn that over into the Jets and the Bills on Monday night. And, of course, with that, the official unveiling of Aaron Rodgers as the Jets' starting quarterback. So it's exciting to think ahead a little bit to what is going to happen next week. We are almost there. We are not quite there. It's an interesting weekend in the sports calendar. A lot of people get in their last-minute trips to the beach, amusement parks, vacations out of the way. Everybody back on Tuesday. School is in in some places, starting in others, and away we go through the NFL season. And again, to reiterate, and I know last year, especially for the Giants, but even for the Jets up until December when they fell apart at the end, Last year, there was not a lot of anticipation for the NFL season. It's easy to remember that because, again, in the Giants' case, it was such a delightfully surprising season. Starting from the very beginning, with that come-from-behind win in Tennessee, Giants getting off to a 2-0 start and going all the way to 9-7-1, a playoff victory, Brian Dayball being named Coach of the Year. But if you remember last year on week one of the NFL season, there wasn't a lot of anticipation for the Giants, and there wasn't a lot of anticipation for the Jets. Both of those teams collectively were coming off of a five-year stretch in which they were fighting each other to be the worst franchise in the NFL. And I think they were tied record-wise over that five-year stretch at the bottom of that list. And then the first half of week one for the Giants... It looked like the same old Giants. They couldn't move the ball. They had trouble protecting Daniel Jones. They had trouble moving the ball downfield. They didn't score in the first half of that game against Tennessee. Saquon Barkley had a big play in the third quarter that set up their first score, and all of a sudden they were back in the game. And then you got to see for the first time Brian Dable's really expertise at managing close games, something that led to numerous Giants wins last season. For the Jets... If you remember the season opener last year, it was also much of the same. There were no expectations for the Jets. At least with the Giants last year, you had the slight the slight thing to look forward to with the new head coach. And I think you were just happy that it was anybody other than Joe Judge wearing that headset on the Giants sideline. But you had Daniel Jones, and his status as the Giants starting quarterback long-term was very much in doubt at that time. You didn't know what you had in Brian Dayball. You were intrigued by him because he was such a, 
Um, interesting personality in his press conferences. Great sense of humor. Very personable guy. The polar opposite of what they had had in that position. From Judge back to Pat Shermer, back to Ben McAdoo. But you also had the hope that maybe he was the polar opposite of those three guys in terms of coaching a team. And it turned out that he was. But at least with the Giants, you had that excitement of something new. With the Jets, you had nothing new. You had year two with Robert Sala, hoping hoping that he was the right guy, but having no proof that he was. You had year two with Zach Wilson, hoping that he was the right guy, but with no proof that he was. And of course, Zach Wilson didn't even start the season last year because of the injury that he suffered in the preseason. So to make matters worse, you started the season with Joe Flacco as your starting quarterback. So not even a prospect to look forward to. And then the Jets came out at home and got blown out by Baltimore 24-9. And it really did, through week one for the Jets, through the first half of week one for the Giants, it really did have the feeling of, well, business as usual for both of these teams. It really wasn't until the end of September for both teams when the Jets had that come-from-behind win in Pittsburgh, actually on October 2nd, and the Giants got out of the gates with a 3-1 and record thanks to a very soft early season schedule. Something that happens in the NFL that you have to take advantage of. Neither of those teams, by the way, this year will have a soft early season schedule. But the point is, if you want to think back to this time last year, there was very, very little excitement. I mean, it's funny. It was completely opposite of where we are right now. Last year, Labor Day weekend, final nfl list Sunday on the calendar of 2022. We were wall-to-wall baseball. Wall-to-wall baseball. Could the Mets hold off the Braves, win the NL East, and how dangerous would they be in a short series with Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer at the top of their rotation? The Yankees, after a borderline historic start last season for the first couple of months, had leveled off. Did they have enough to hold on and win the AL East? And how much were they set up to win the division? And of course, most importantly for the Yankees last year, we were right in the midst of Aaron Judge's quest for 62 home runs. Think about how the sports landscape in New York has changed in 12 short months. Right now, baseball is almost an afterthought. And I say almost because of what's going on this weekend. With the prospects coming up on both teams. Jason Dominguez and Austin Wells, the continued development of Anthony Volpe, Ronnie Mauricio for the Mets, and Brett Beatty, Francisco Alvarez, seeing if he can finish his rookie year off strong for the Mets. That's the only thing occupying even a little bit of our attention right now. Now, it's been a terrific weekend so far for the Yankees. A terrific weekend. The kind of weekend they have not had since before the All-Star break. And the Mets... Mauricio's been fun. He's got two hits in each of his first two games. He had the hardest hit ball by any Met this season in his first major league at bat. That's been fun to watch. The Mets continue to do, though, what they've done since the trade deadline. They fight. This Mets team has fought. And they fought again yesterday. They fought again on Friday night, holding off the Mariners. They fought yesterday, coming from behind multiple times only to lose on a ninth-inning home run by J.P. Crawford against a very, very good team that's fighting for its division championship. But at least 
you have these prospects to occupy some of your attention. Now, how long will that last? That's the big question. Because once we hit Tuesday, and once it's a game week, and we're two days away from the start of the NFL, and we're days away from the start of the Giants season, and days away from the start of the Jets season, the question is, can these young prospects continue to hold your attention? And I don't know. I will admit this. Right now, the Yankees have my attention. It's been two games, but it's been two games against... You don't want to make too much of this. It's been two games against a top-flight team, a Hall of Fame pitcher on Friday night that they battered all around the ballpark. And it's funny. It's like you see what Dominguez did his first at-bat with the opposite field two-run home run on Friday night. And then Austin Wells coming up and getting a base hit in his first at-bat. Anthony Volpe, the game before, became a 2020 man as a rookie. And now you're starting, it, it has, it, it, it has injected a little bit of life into the veterans. Not that the Aaron Judges and the DJ LeMayhews and the Giancarlo Stantons were going through the motions. I don't think they were. I don't think you could say Aaron Judge has been going through the motions. The guy's got 31 home runs, and I think he's played 82 games. He's basically, over the course of a 162-game season, he's on pace to hit 60 home runs again. But it has injected a little bit of life into these veterans that have been so blah the second half of this season. You know, Dominguez comes up, hits a two-run home run. Wells gets the base hit. Got a sack fly last night. Contributed to the win. And now all of a sudden, Aaron Judge, well, he doesn't want to be left behind. Home run Friday, home run Saturday. Giancarlo Stanton, monster home run on Friday night. DJ LeMayhew, leadoff home run on Friday night. It can have this kind of effect when you bring up young players and they perform. And it has to be the right young players. And you just hope and pray if you're a Yankees fan that Jason Dominguez is the right type of young player. And Austin Wells would be great as well. But Dominguez is the key here because he is... He's the gold standard for Yankee prospects in that organization. They have invested an incredible amount of money in him. He's moved up the ranks of the minor league system very quickly, but he's been part of the organization, and you've been hearing about him as the future since he was 16 years old. So is there a lot of pressure on Dominguez? I don't know that he's feeling it, but if you're a Yankees fan... And if you're Brian Cashman, and if you're Hal Steinbrenner, and if you're the Yankees front office, there absolutely is a sense that this has to work with this guy. And I said it on Friday when I was here. Calling up prospects is basically a last resort for a general manager. The Yankees and the Mets, Brian Cashman and Billy Epler, they were essentially out of ideas. You know, the Yankees were already such a huge disappointment with their underperforming veterans, and then they started bringing up young kids that I don't even know if they, in any other year, would be considered future prospects. You know, we'll have to wait and see on guys like Everson Pereira. Oswald Peraza looks like a very good glove, but can he hit? I don't know. Oswaldo Cabrera, I think, has shown this season that he's not a major league caliber hitter. So there wasn't a lot to get excited for with those guys. But now September turns, the roster expands, and, and, and you bring up the guys that the fans want to see. And first and foremost, it's Dominguez, and then it's Austin Wells, and for the Mets, it's Ronnie Mauricio. So 
the question is, yes, I do think that there was a sense of excitement for these guys this weekend. And as we've been saying for weeks, I mean, the Mets have pretty much been an afterthought ever since they went through the trade deadline by trading all those guys away and restocking their farm system. From that point forward, up until they brought up Mauricio and brought back Brett Beatty, from that point forward, there really wasn't much reason to follow the Mets on a day-in, day-out basis. And for the Yankees, it probably lasted about two weeks beyond the trade deadline because at the deadline, the Yankees were still technically in the wild card race in the American League. And then they went on that nine-game losing streak, and that took care of that. And from about the middle of August on, the Yankees ceased to be a story, which is an incredible turn of events. First of all, from the Yankees' perspective, that they would be irrelevant before the calendar turns to September. And secondly, with all of the expectations that these teams had on them collectively and the seasons that they had last year when they combined to win 200 regular season games, the idea that before we hit Labor Day, both teams collectively would be irrelevant and we're talking incessantly about the offensive lines of the Jets and the Giants and the performances of young first-round pick right tackles in preseason games more than we're talking about baseball pennant races. That is an incredible turn of events that we've gone through in this town, but that's where we are right now. So the last thing to try to capture your attention is bringing up the kids, and you hope that they're the right kids. Now, is Mauricio part of the Mets' long-term plans? I don't know because he's a shortstop, and if you look at the Mets' lineup, they're set at center field with Brandon Nimmo. Uh, They're set at catcher, despite his recent struggles with Francisco Alvarez. I would have thought they'd be set at first base, but as we have discussed recently, that seems like anything but a certainty with Pete Alonso. But the other place that they're set is at shortstop with Francisco Lindor, who has he performed up to his contract? I would say no, because it's an enormous contract. But compared to other guys on the Mets, he's done his job compared to other guys on the Mets doing their jobs this year. So he's been fine. He hasn't been great. He hasn't been outstanding. He's been fine. And he is entrenched as your starting shortstop going forward. So what is Mauricio's future? I don't know. But it's just nice to see him up here through two games performing the way he has so far, showing his athleticism, his speed. That's the one thing you notice about both of these teams, and and even more so with the Yankees. Because with the Yankees... How tired have you been watching Stanton try to go from first to second? Or dare I even say, try to go from first to third? I mean, the guy is, you know, stiff as a board. DJ LeMahieu is not an athletic player at this point in his career. Even Glaber Torres, who's 26 years old, isn't the, you know, model of a modern-day athlete. Okay? But seeing Dominguez and his youthful exuberance, seeing Austin Wells, a young athletic-type guy behind the plate, And then on the Mets side, seeing Mauricio, he's electric. You watch this guy, and he's absolutely electric. And we haven't seen a lot of that here. And we weren't expecting to see it at all this year either. So there are really important questions the last few weeks of the season for both teams. You know, we know they have a tremendous amount of holes to fill on both sides of town. How many holes? That is a question that could be partially answered over the next couple of weeks. Now... The adage in baseball, you don't want to get too crazy about what you see in March and what you see in September, okay? A lot of times, guys are red hot in spring training. They make the roster. 
The season begins, and all of a sudden, they can't hit, facing Major League Pitching on a day-in, day-out basis. Similar deal for September, because a lot of these guys, the Yankees this weekend, are playing the Astros. Terrific team, something to play for, something to fight for. They're facing a high-caliber Major League team, but you know when you face the Tigers and teams like that down the stretch, who are also going to be having guys auditioning for Major League jobs... You've got to be careful with how you judge your prospects playing against guys who might not be in the major leagues next season. So you don't want to get too crazy about what you see in September, but there's still a lot to learn this month. And I know it's only been two days, and it's only been two games for each, but I really do like what I have seen so far. Not just what the individual players have done. For the Mets, not a lot has changed. Mauricio has been great. He's been fun to watch. I don't really have a problem with the Mets' approach, really since the beginning of August, even before the trade deadline. I think the Mets have played hard. I think they've been feisty. I think they've fought. I'd have to look it up, but I'm pretty sure the Mets are right around a 500 team since going back to right before the trade deadline. And that's as they have traded off the core of what was supposed to be a playoff team. The Yankees looked dead. I mean, they looked dead in August. They looked even against Detroit. Yeah, they won three games in a row, and then they lose in ugly fashion on a throwing error on Thursday afternoon. They've just, this is a team that had not won a series since June until earlier this week, and now they've won back-to-back series. They looked dead, they looked stale, whatever adjective you want to put on it. During this series in Houston, and maybe it's seeing the Astros, maybe it's playing, you know, in a big game, at least a big game for the opponent. And I think part of it is having these young kids come up and just inject some excitement and enthusiasm into that clubhouse. They have looked like a different team so far. How long, the question is, how long is this going to keep your attention? What if what if Dominguez has a Gary Sanchez-like finish to 2023, like Sanchez did in 2016? Now, Sanchez was up for the last couple of months of the season, but he played 53 games and he had 20 home runs. You know, what if Dominguez hits like eight or nine home runs this month? What if he flirts with a 300 batting average this month? Is that likely to keep your attention if you're a Yankees fan or or are you already out? Are you already out? It's gotten so bad and you're not even going to invest anything else into your team because the football season is around the corner. And like I said before, at least through two games, especially for the Yankees, because I think the Yankees, the product they were putting on the field looked a lot worse than the Mets had in recent weeks. At least through two games, the Yankees have got my attention. All right, we got plenty to get to. Um, college football underway. Interesting, interesting and loud statement by Colorado and head coach Deion Sanders. We'll get ready for week one of the NFL season. A couple of guests as well. Patty Trainer will come on and talk Giants. Brian Hoke will come on and talk Yankees. Uh, and the United States basketball team tips off in the World Cup about 10 minutes from now. Jalen Brunson, Josh Hart. We'll be following that along in your calls at 1-800-919-3776. On this Sunday morning, Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. All right, the Pat O'Keefe Show is brought to you by Golf Zone Social. Golf Zone Social, the most social experience in golf on this Sunday morning of Labor Day weekend. 1-800-919-3776. one 800 
So I mentioned the Mets and 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 you know, and I, all season long, even before they traded the pitchers off, they traded half the roster off. Um, when there were the calls for Buck Showalter to be removed or replaced as manager, and I don't know what the future is going to hold. I don't know what the future is going to hold for Billy Epler. Um, I, I would imagine that he's not going to be the person making the final calls next season. Will he still be part of the organization? That remains to be seen. And whoever the new team president is, whoever Steve Cohen brings in above the general manager spot to run things, does he want Buck Showalter to remain as the Mets manager? You know, I've long been a Buck Showalter fan. I didn't think it was his fault when this team stumbled in the month of June and played itself out of the pennant race. Um, And I think that the way that the Mets have played since the trade deadline, yeah, they're not a very good team right now. They're not an overly talented team. I mean, just look. First of all, the bullpen was shaky at the start of the season once Edwin Diaz went down with the injury. And then at the trade deadline, you sent out the best performer in that bullpen in David Robertson. The starting rotation struggled all season long with inconsistency. Carlos Carrasco never got on track this season. Max Scherzer was up and down. Justin Verlander missed the first six weeks of the season. And then you traded off Scherzer and Verlander. Verlander was pitching as well as anyone in baseball when you sent him out. And, you know, Scherzer was showing some positive signs and has been good with Texas since you sent him out. So what... What are the expectations for that team after you trade off that much talent? Well, the Mets have played pretty well since then, despite a lack of talent on their current roster. You know, they're playing without Starling Marte. Brandon Nimmo was really good the first half of the season, hasn't been as good. But still, the Mets have played pretty well since the trade deadline. They fought. They have been feisty. They've played a lot of tough teams also. Texas, Atlanta, this weekend against Seattle. And I think that's a testament to Buck Showalter. I really, really do. So we'll see if he's still in that spot next season. There's a lot of guys in this town playing, coaching, managing, general managing for their jobs over the last month of this season. The one thing that helps a general manager that could really, really help is if the prospects that they've identified as the crown jewels of their respective organizations, the Jason Dominguez's, the Austin Wells's, the Ronnie Mauricio's, if they come up this month and tear it up, that looks very, very kindly upon the general manager. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to the phones and start things off with Steve in Chappaqua. Steve, good morning. Pat, you're a pleasure to listen to. I I look forward to your hosting. Thanks, Steve. Um, My question is DJ Stewart. Nobody talks about him. He wasn't touted, and it's kind of a surprise that he's raking the way he is. But the guy has 10 homers. Is is there a future for him with the Mets? What do you think about how he's performing? I think he's performing Beautifully. I think he has really, really been a revelation. Um, He's got a 10-10 OPS, 1,010 OPS. He's got those 10 home runs. But the problem, Steve, is he's 29 years old. So, you know, he spent five seasons up and down with a bad Baltimore Orioles franchise. He's never gotten more than 270 at-bats in a season in his career. But you cannot argue with the results. He has really, really given them a shot in the arm since he's come up. Yeah, do you, do you think there's a spot for him, uh, or is this uh, like a you know September, you know, under the radar? He's he's not going to have a future here. Well, he, I, I would have thought that it would have been an under the radar. Here's a guy that you plug into the lineup because you got to plug somebody in the lineup, Steve. And thanks for the call. 
Uh, I would have thought that at first, but the more he continues to perform, the question is, can he sustain it? You know, he's 29 years old, so, you know, you're not looking at him like a Mauricio or a Dominguez as the future of your franchise, but what you what he has done, he, he's performed really well. The biggest question is, can he do it over the course of a season? Can he really be a corner outfielder in your lineup? I mean, historically, guys who have these kinds of runs, career minor leaguers or guys that have bounced back and forth between the majors and the minors, guys like DJ Stewart with that profile, yes, it, some of them do pan out and some of them do have solid late-season careers. But historically, more often than not, it ends up being just a little bit of a flash in the pan and not something that you can rely on going forward. But Stewart's been great. I mean, when you look at the Mets... I spoke about Kodai Senga on Friday night when he put the finishing touches on another terrific performance. His ERA is, I think, slightly above three right now. He had 12 strikeouts and in seven innings on Friday night against a really, really good Seattle Mariners lineup. He's been the brightest spot on the team this year. Stewart's been a really, really good addition the last couple of months with his 1,010 OPS. Um... Francisco Alvarez, for the most part this year, has been one of the best things to come out of the Mets season, but he's really, really slumped since for a while now, like going on two months. You go back to the middle of July, and since the 20th of July, Alvarez, the 21-year-old catcher, he's 14 for 104. That's a 135 batting average, and during that time, his batting average has dropped from 247 to 211. You'd love to see him. You'd love to see him finish this season on a high note because it's been a overwhelmingly positive season for him as a hitter, as a catcher, and much like the Yankees with Anthony Volpe. And with Anthony Volpe, the Yankees plugged him in day one. You know, Alvarez started this season third on the depth chart among Mets catchers, and by June he had taken over that job. And I think his work behind the plate, which wasn't highly thought of before the season, has really opened some eyes in addition to his power numbers. I mean, he's a really good-looking power hitter. 21 home runs, 47 RBIs. You hit 21 home runs as a 21-year-old catcher, they're going to find a spot for you. It's been an overwhelmingly positive season for Alvarez, but you really love to see him over these last three or four weeks finish it on a high note because he's really going through some struggles right now. But that's it for the Mets. Senga... Alvarez, we'll see what you have with Mauricio. He's four for seven, including the hardest hit ball by any Mets player this season. The other thing is, if you're going to commit to this over the last month, the Mets have nothing to play for. They're not going to the playoffs. And I would say this for both teams. The Yankees are doing it so far. The Mets last night started Vientos at third. Beatty was not in the starting lineup. Can you please find a spot for both of these guys every day? They're young. They don't need rest. The wins and losses are not the most important thing right now. Can we take this final month to see if Brett Beatty can be your starting third baseman opening day next year? I don't need him on the bench last night. I really don't. Can we play him every day? Can we play Vientos every day? Can we play Mauricio every day? Alvarez is a catcher. That's different. Alvarez also, to me, has proven that he should be the catcher next year. Okay, so you can handle that a little bit differently. Same with the Yankees, and, and they're doing it so far. And God knows the Yankees are notorious for giving people days off. But let's continue to see Dominguez in center field. He's 20 years old. He does not need a rest. 
Let's continue to see Wells behind the plate as the primary catcher going forward. I think we know what we have with Kyle Higashioka. Okay? Everson Pereira. I don't know what he is. Big numbers in the minors. Slow start in the majors. Very, very small sample size. Let's find out. And, and Oswald Peraza. The one thing we know about Peraza, he has a major league caliber glove. So he's already kind of gotten a leg up on everybody else because he has one part of his game that is major league ready. Can he elevate his hitting to the point where he can be a serviceable major league player? You don't need the guy to hit 325 home runs. But can he have a 330 on base percentage? Can he have a 350 on base percentage? Can he hit 250? Can he hit 260? That would be great. With his glove, that's a major leaguer right there. That's what you're looking for the last few weeks of this baseball season. 1-800-919-3776. The Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. And the Pat O'Keefe Show is presented by Juggernaut. Juggernaut Hillside Cabernet Sauvignon, a wine that is fierce, brave, and delicious. Juggernaut Hillside Cabernet Sauvignon wine, harnessing the power of nature. Hope everyone's having a great Labor Day weekend so far. Actually, a little basketball to check out this morning. Uh, We'll be following along. It's the FIBA World Cup. Uh, If you haven't been following the, the tournament, especially the United States team, is teaming with New York Knickerbockers. And they're about to tip off in a pool play game. I believe this is the final game of pool play against Lithuania. So it'll be a tough contest. The U.S. hasn't lost yet. They've been tested a couple of times. Jalen Brunson has emerged as the de facto captain for Steve Kerr's Team USA. He's in the starting lineup for this game against Lithuania. So is Josh Hart. Anthony Edwards, who's been the breakout star for the Americans this tournament. Mikhail Bridges and the reigning NBA Defensive Player of the Year, Jaron Jackson Jr. So that's the starting five for Team USA. There's a lot of talent on the bench. Brunson's been starting over Tyrese Halliburton. You also have Brandon Ingram, an NBA All-Star, coming off the bench for this team. And a lot of New York flavor, a lot of Villanova flavor in the starting five with Brunson and Hart and Mikhail Bridges. But the interesting thing is they're playing Lithuania, and Lithuania is historically one of the better European teams. Jonas Valanciunas, the center for the New Orleans Pelicans, is the most recognizable name on that team. But you talk about the heavy Knicks influence. Two of the other starters for Lithuania, one of them, Ignis Brasdakis, who had a cup of coffee with the Knicks a couple of years ago. He was a second-round draft pick and the last man on the roster for a couple of years. He was drafted along with in the same draft of 2019 as R.J. Barrett. But then the other guy to keep an eye on is the point guard for Lithuania, Rokas Jokubaitis, because the Knicks have his draft rights. He was the Knicks' second-round pick in 2021. He's a 22-year-old point guard, and he's been one of the breakout stars of this tournament. And he's still thought of as a guy who could be in the future plans for the Knicks and has played very, very well during this World Cup so far. So you've got a Knicks influence, a Villanova influence, and a Knicks-slash-Nets influence, heavy influence in this game that we'll be following along. But, you know, it got me thinking about the Knicks' recent draft picks, and there's been a lot of conversation led by me and others, um, you know, on who the Knicks haven't drafted during this era. As good a position as they're in right now, you know, they could be better. And there were three specific draft years where 
as we have now learned with the hindsight of several years of evidence that the Knicks picked the wrong guy. And the first instance of that, and you got to go back to the Phil Jackson tenure for that. In fact, Phil Jackson's uh, last act as the Knicks president was drafting Frank Milikina when Donovan Mitchell was available in the 2017 draft. And I was uh, thinking back to other examples of that. Knicks drafting a, a Frenchman, Neil Aquino, instead of a local New York City, New York area product that was available and went on to be an NBA All-Star. And it got me thinking of the 1999 draft when the Knicks picked Frederick Weiss and Ron Artest was still available and still called Ron Artest. And he was selected with the very next pick. And that's one that the Knicks had to live with for a long time because Vice never made it to the NBA. At least Neil Aquina made it to the NBA, but he certainly has not had the career of Donovan Mitchell. By the way, Neil Aquina wasn't even on, I don't even think he was on the French World Cup basketball roster here. So what does that say if he couldn't even make that team? So that was one example. And then you have the 2018 draft, the very next year. And the guy I just mentioned starting for Team USA right now, Mikhail Bridges was available. And the Knicks opted for Kevin Knox. And then in 2020, coming out of COVID, Tyrese Halliburton, who until he was injured last year, was leading the NBA in assists. Tyrese Halliburton was available and the Knicks picked Obi Toppin. And Obi Toppin has already been shipped out. He's now teammates with Halliburton, who just signed his rookie max extension with the Indiana Pacers. So it again shows the importance of drafting. Now that's the negative side of what the Knicks have done over the last decade or so. But the Knicks, I, I don't know if there's another team that has done as well in the second round as the Knicks have done. I mean, if you think about the Knicks rotation right now, Mitchell Robinson in that 2018 draft as the 35th overall pick, that'll go down as one of the best draft picks in Knicks history. 35th pick overall, and you get a guy who has really become your starting center for the last four years. Deuce McBride, early in the second round a couple of years ago out of West Virginia, is another gem that they uncovered. And even guys on the Knicks that they didn't pick. Jalen Brunson was a second-round draft pick. Um, Isaiah Hartenstein was a second-round draft pick. I mean, half the Knicks rotation. They have a nine-man rotation. Four or five of them were picked in the second round. So it says a lot about how they can... Even, even their late first-round picks have been good. You know, getting quickly at number 25... Terrific, terrific value. You're lucky if you pick at 25 that late. Look, the NBA draft is not what it used to be. You know, it used to be a generation ago, you pick somebody in the first round, they should be starting within like two years. Now, if you pick late in the first round, 24, 25, 26, if that guy ends up on your roster after three years, that's a successful pick. Quickly at number 25 is a terrific pick. So was Quentin Grimes in the exact same spot the very next season with the 25th overall pick. Within two years, he's your starting shooting guard on a team that goes to the second round of the playoffs. So the Knicks drafting in that area, late first round, early second round has been fantastic. But you go back to those three, and, and the current regime, you know, to be fair, Leon Rose and his group, they're only responsible for the most recent selection of Obi Toppin over Tyrese Halliburton. Kevin Knox over Mikhail Bridges, that was Steve Mills and Scott Perry. And like I said, Frank Nielakina over Donovan Mitchell was Phil Jackson. But the Knicks 
the lottery, when they're picking in the lottery, have had some picks where they probably would want to do over. But you get them in the late first round, in the early second round, they have uncovered some gems. And that goes back to my point about this point guard for Lithuania, Rokas Jokobaitis, 22 years old, second round pick, 2021 draft. Could he be another late or early second round pick that the Knicks have, uh, an early second round gem that the Knicks have uncovered? We'll see. That's how you build teams because it is so difficult as we've been through and been through and been through for years. It is so difficult in the NBA to build through free agency. And it's so difficult now to build through trades. You know, you want Damian Lillard. You want James Harden. You want Joel Embiid. You want Giannis. If he's available next season, you're going to have to give everything up. Everything. Look how much they would have had to have given up for Donovan Mitchell. And that's a guy who couldn't even get his team out of the first round of the playoffs last year. If a team has one of these star players who wants out, and wants a change of scenery, that team is going to ask for everything. That's why it's just easier, and this is easier said than done, just easier to draft the guy in the first place. I will go back to the phones, 1-800-919-3776, some NFL thoughts, and whatever else is on your mind on this Sunday morning on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. And the Paddle Keep Show is brought to you by Golf Zone Social. Golf Zone Social, the most social experience in golf. Going through the Knicks roster, there was one second-round pick I forgot, uh, Jericho Sims, who I think was the 58th overall pick. Also a rotation player last year. So the Knicks have done a great job in the second round with Sims, obviously Mitchell Robinson, Deuce McBride, a very good second-round pick. And then when you factor in, Jalen Brunson was a second-round pick, not by the Knicks, of course, and Isaiah Hartenstein, also a second-round pick. So when you hear these trades, uh, five second-round picks for so-and-so or three second-round picks, and you think a second-round pick is just a throwaway, look at the Knicks roster. The Knicks have, of their top 10 guys in the rotation or their top 11 guys in their rotation, five of them were picked in the second round. And the Knicks roster is good. You know, this isn't five years ago when we're talking about the Knicks as a 17 or a 23 win team with David Fisdale or Jeff Hornacek as their head coach. The Knicks roster is good. It's probably one of the top 10 rosters in the NBA. They're one of the top 10 teams in the NBA. And half of their roster is second round picks. Now, Lithuania, as we follow this game, is off to a very hot start. They lead the Americans 20 to 10 with about two minutes to go in the first quarter. And they just showed a stat on the broadcast. Rokas Jakobaitis, the Knicks' second-round pick from a couple of years ago, the point guard for Lithuania, is shooting 70% on three-pointers during this FIBA World Cup. But the U.S. has their hands full. They're 4-0 so far. Their last win over Montenegro, they won by 12 points, and that was their closest game so far. But Lithuania is also undefeated. And like I said, Lithuania is out to a 20-10 lead. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to Omar in Brooklyn. Good morning, Omar. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How's everything? Everything is good. How are you doing? Hey, listen. Uh, I'm excited about the Knicks. I have some conversation. Let's do that Donovan Mitchell of... Uh, we agreed that Donovan Mitchell is an all-star player and Frank Nilekina didn't work out, but... It depends on the player. Look at Obi Toppin at number eight overall. Pick at the time. We didn't have at the time Julius Randle, what Julius Randle became. 
Correct. So now, now Obi Toppin going to Indiana Pacers and playing with Halliburton, that's what they needed uh, on a fast break, the person that can run the floor and dunk it. That will suit that Indiana Pacer team. So that's why they were willing to play, play in for the... It didn't work out with the Knicks, but you cannot say that that pick was not a good pick at that time uh, uh, because we never expected Julius Randle to become Julius Randle. So Halliburton, now we have Brunson and Iman quickly is if we are going to be play Halliburton that a maximum rookie contract are you willing to take out Brunson and quickly from this team well, you think if you're comparing, what is quickly if you're comparing I, I love quickly but if you're comparing quickly to Halliburton and they were both picked in the same draft by the way quickly was the 25th pick and I think Halliburton went 12th if you're comparing the two of them they're they're not really comparable Brunson's obviously a different story so look that has that has softened the blow a little bit on the not picking Halliburton yeah but quickly when he starts when he starts as a point guard yeah. You know, you see his numbers, and that's why he's uh, telling uh, everybody uh, through the media or whatever it is that I want $100 million because people are willing to pay him $100 million because when he starts, his uh, uh, point ratio and turnover ratio and uh, three-point, he, he's a totally a different player. So his stats with Halliburton, Halliburton starts, quickly doesn't start. That's why his numbers are not there. When quickly is going to start, his number is going to be out, so that's why he, he's uh, couching through the media that I want $100 million, and Knicks are negotiating a uh, hard zone or anything. I no, love look, he, I he, love Brunson. His numbers when he started, Omar, were terrific, but it was also about a 20-game sample size. When Hall, Halliburton is a bona fide starter in this league, and we shouldn't compare Halliburton and Quickly. They're both very good players, but Halliburton's a better player. Quickly's numbers were good, Omar, over a 20-game stretch. Halliburton, before he got hurt last year, was an all-star and was leading the end NBA is, in is, assists. Is Halliburton a better three-point shooter than him? No. Is he? Is he a better? It's by the way, it's closer. It's closer than you think. By the way, but, Halliburton but he, doesn't have it, the is nicest is form. He, is he a better defender one-on-one? -on -one? No. No. No question. The next best uh, perimeter defender at this time, at this particular time, is Iman Quickly, on-ball defender and one-to-one -one perimeter defender. That's a fact. And Halliburton is not even close to that. So uh, there is ups and downs, and quickly has not played that many uh, 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 games as a starter that we can analyze him that he is definitely better. The upgrade on quickly and upgrade on uh, Barrett, what he showed against Cleveland Series in the playoffs, that's what uh, the Knicks have a plus point in selling a trade for a superstar because nobody knows what Barrett is going to become, and nobody knows what Iman quickly's potential is. So, but there is a high potential ceiling on both of them. That's why we're going to land a superstar whenever somebody is going to be included. These two players are going to be included in the trade. And the Knicks fan better be careful. RJ Barrett plays 70 games. Iman quickly played 70 plus games every year. So uh, we we don't want players that doesn't play 50 games or 60 games. They can have great numbers, but when we need them, they're not available. So we, we better be careful. Julius Randle plays 75, 76 game every year. We have to understand that. Availability is one part of a superstar to, uh, to become. That's, that's Omar, the main I thing agree. I agree with a lot of what you're saying, and thanks for the call. I do agree with a lot of what you're saying. The best point that Omar made, and I've said this before, it's easy what I'm doing right now to look back, okay, um, Toppin over Halliburton 
was a mistake in hindsight. Obviously, I think the most egregious one is probably Knox over Bridges because they were essentially like the same player for the same position. Comparing Toppin and Halliburton is tough. One is a point guard, and one is a rim-running athletic power forward. And then Neil Aquina over Donovan Mitchell is tough to defend as well. The, the, the toughest call is... Halliburton over, uh, excuse me, Toppin over Halliburton. Is is Halliburton a better NBA player than Obi Toppin? Sure. But the best point that Omar made, and I've said this before, if you go back to that 2020 draft, and that was coming off of COVID, the draft was in November that year. Um, Toppin had been the player of the year with Dayton, but there was no NCAA tournament. So we never really got to see him on that national stage. Um, Julius Randle had just finished his first season with the Knicks. And it was a disappointing season. It was a disappointing season for the entire team. They fired David Fisdale 20 games into the season. But it was a disappointing season for Randall. He got off to a very, very slow start. He was trying to do too much. And when Mike Miller took over as the interim head coach, that's when Randall's Knicks tenure started to turn around. But by that point, a lot of people had already kind of tuned out the Knicks because they were once again on their way to uh, irrelevancy that year. And that led to a shakeup of uh, the front office and the head coach. You did not know what Julius Randle was going to become. Therefore, you drafted Obi Toppin. Unfortunately for Toppin, as soon as he got here, the guy he was backing up immediately became an all-NBA player, which is good for the Knicks because Randle has led them to two playoff appearances in the last three seasons. More on this as we continue this morning on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.